Welcome to the Learning Scientist Podcast, a podcast for teachers, students, and parents about evidence-based practice and learning. Welcome back to the Learning Scientist Podcast. Y'all are in for a treat today. I am so happy to be joined by Regan Gurung and John Dumlaski, both, I mean, giants in the field of the scholarship of teaching and learning. So um, we have so much to hear about today. And, and I'm just excited, frankly, to learn a bit from these um, expert educators and, and researchers in the field. So I'm going to let each of you introduce yourself real quick, and then we'll, we'll dive right in. So, uh, Regan, you want to start? So, John, I guess there's a treat coming up, so we must be the warm-up act for the treat, right? So, (laughs) (laughs) well, hello, and uh, this is Regan Grung, Associate Vice Provost and Executive Director for the Center for Teaching and Learning at Oregon State University and Professor of Psychology. Thrilled to be here. And I'm John Donlosky. I'm a professor at Kent State University. I've been here for about 20 years doing cognitive education research, and I am thrilled to talk uh, learning sciences today. Yeah, thank you guys so much for taking the time um, out of your busy schedules to be here. So at The Learning Scientists, right, we're all about doing this this work of trying to get learning science into the hands of students. And usually we have to do that through educators. Um, So a lot of the folks who are listening right now are likely educators who are going to want to take... um, some of what we talk about today and apply it to their own classrooms. So uh, the first question that I have for you all today is um, about that. So I want you to think about your own research and goodness knows you guys have lots to pull from. Um, but think about your own research and and if there's a, a favorite piece of research out there that you could take and give some piece of advice for educators. Sure. And, uh, you know, I can pause and to appear thoughtful, but the moment you asked me that question, I something jumped into my head. And the, the research that I really think about is some early research that I did on uh, how exactly students do study in the classroom. So very, uh, very pragmatic, how do students study? And what I found that I since replicated multiple times was that uh, students used uh, key terms or flashcards way too much. Uh, and the finding that knocked me off my research chair, as it were, was that there was a strong, significant negative correlation between uh, studying key terms and how they did on the exam. And from that time on, I, ca- I consider uh, study techniques such as flashcards or key term studying a kind of a dangerous detour where it seems like it's something that should work. But if you're doing that exclusively without doing anything else, and that's the key, without doing anything else or doing it too much without deeper processing and something else, it, it, it could not have the effect you wanted. So that just jumps out at me, strong negative correlation did not expect that. Yeah, really interesting. It makes me think we, I'll, I'll find this for the show notes. Um, we have a blog out there. Somebody, somebody did a guest blog a while back using what they called a five-sided flashcard or something, where instead of just having terms and definitions, some of the cards said things like compare and contrast, pull two cards, right? And so there are ways of doing flashcards that are good. And then there are ways that are not so good, right? As with absolutely. Everything. Absolutely. All right, John, you want to share your favorite research with us? Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of spin off of this one. Actually, I have a very positive outlook on flashcards and, and key terms and just learning them well enough so that you have access on the test. And most students really don't use those technologies with 
enough fidelity really to help them memorize them and understand them. With that said, we are doing a large project uh, in a neurobio course uh, using a technology called successive relearning, helping students really memorize a great deal of the content that they had for the course. And what blew me away is something that never made it to the manuscript. So that's why I'm going to share it now. And it's simply that the students loved using this technology, which was just really a highfalutin flashcard technology for the first exam. It boosted their letter grade by about letter grade and a half. So they got a really nice boost in it. And out of these 50 students, 10 of them wrote, this is the most fun we've had studying for a class. Really, really want uh, to do this for exam two. Please give us the program to help us out. So we gave them these kind of highfalutin flashcard programs for exam two. And out of the 50 students who we could show them on exam one, you really benefited from this. Only three of the students used the technology for exam two. So it tells me that even with a student that's excited, ready to go, really rare to go, right, uh, that they won't necessarily use a technology when the rubber hits the road because the students are extremely busy. There's lots of things they need to do. So somewhere the sweet spot is going to be the nexus between technologies and strategies that work well and that also the students have enough time to use to really catapult their performance into the next level. Yeah, we're going to get into that a little bit more here in a minute. I, I've got a, I got a couple questions about how do we actually get students to do good things. Um, but yeah, that's really interesting. I, I love hearing about the research that doesn't make it into the manuscript too, or and, and you having the opportunity to share it. That's great. One of the things that we hear a lot um, and and I experience a lot, is that we have a lot of these recommendations that we give educators for really good things they can do in their classrooms. And a lot of times it feels a little overwhelming to like try to rewrite your curriculum or whatever you need to do. What I'm wondering right now is if you guys could share a little bit of what you do in your own teaching that is practicing what you preach, right? So what kinds of science of learning things? So if you want to share, I don't know, an activity or a way that you have things designed that you intentionally did because of the scholarship of teaching and learning. John, you want to go first on this one? Yeah, why not? And I I hope, uh, I'm going to tell you what I'm doing, then I hope many of the folks listening to this are already doing this. And it's, it's every class I begin with a uh, no to low stakes uh, quiz. And I do that for a variety of reasons. Many of you all know. Uh, it's first uh, when the students pass the quiz, obviously they're learning from engaging the quiz because if you get something correct, recall it from memory, you'll learn better. But also for my larger intro to COG class, all of my um, questions are multiple choice questions. And the standard undergrad that I work with think, well, it's multi- multiple choice. This is going to be and easy, a cakewalk course, so to speak. And what I do is I give them that opportunity at the beginning of every class just for them to experience how difficult, in fact, a well-written multiple choice question can do. And then I kind of dissect it for them for each one to show them to really pass these conceptual kinds of questions. This is what you need to learn for the upcoming exam. Like You need to say, like Regan was doing, not only know what the concepts are, but now you have to be able to distinguish the concepts to understand why it's correct in this case for this one multiple choice and not in the other. So I kind of use that as a, a vehicle to train them how to take multiple choice questions and how to interact with them, but also to understand why they could be so challenging that when they hit their next class that only gives multiple choice questions, they should not think, well, this is going to be a cakewalk, but instead they should think, now I know how to prepare for it. So I really am getting what I should out of the class. So that's one way I practice what I preach. 
uh, I find it the students enjoy it, and it actually is kind of a good icebreaker at the beginning of every day to start with a, a short quiz. You know, one of the things that I I really like about that that kind of gets back even to the flashcard thing is what you just said that they know, hey, yeah, it's a multiple choice test that I'm going to take, but that doesn't necessarily mean I just need to know key terms and definitions, right? There is a certain class where those key terms and definitions might be super useful, right? Um, but uh, it's it's not necessarily our courses um, that that's always true, right? And so um, getting students used to what they how they need to study by virtue of what the test is going to look like is really useful there. So thank you, John. Uh, Regan, you have something you want to share with us? Yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm actually going to push that even a little further, uh, Cynthia, to, to, to riff off what you said, because, you know, yes, you need to get them used to what the test is going to look like, but, a really big but, if very early on we can get them more interested in just learning, even better, right? And so uh, in contrast, but along, and here's my variation on the theme to what John does. Uh, first off, I should say, quick aside, that's why I loved working on this project with John, because he's not just a lab guy, but he's doing things in the classroom. And, you know, that's what I love doing as well. And I mean, just the number of conversations he and I had about, hey, I tried this and this happened. Those were just great. Anyway, so I think, so what I do is right from the get-go, in every class, I have a different kind of quiz. In fact, uh, I label it retrieval practice, and every class starts with retrieval practice where instead of recognition, they actually do recall. Now, what's interesting here, I'm doing this, and, and the context for listeners is I'm doing this in a 400-person intro to psych class, and I'm starting with 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 recall uh, without recognition. So I will actually ask them a question about something we did in class last time. And I'll tell, I mean, today's is fresh. It's salient. I just got done with class half an hour ago. I said, you know, when somebody is fishing for data, uh, and hasn't pre-registered, that is often referred to as, right? And we talked about p-hacking in the last class. And so no notes, no prompt. They have to, every single person has to write down the answer, you know? And like John said, it's low stakes. In fact, there are no stakes. It's every class. It's four, five of these kinds of questions. There's no pressure. I tell them if it hasn't popped into your head in 40 seconds, let's move on, you know? But that's the kind of walk the walk where I've said retrieval practice is important. And by golly, we do retrieval practice every class day. And I will tell you this for those folks out there who go, for those folks out there who go, Oh, that's too jargony right off the bat. I will tell you this by week three, the students are saying, let's do more retrieval practice. Exactly. In fact, I'd love, I'm going to riff off of uh, Regan's riffing because I kind of do the same thing with a multiple choice. I don't give them the alternatives to start with, partly because it's like, it's okay right now. You've not studied presumably yet. So if you can't recall it from memory, try to, but then pause. If you can't get it from memory, look at your notes. Because now, if you can't find the answer in your notes, we have some issues we have to deal with. And it kind of gets into a discussion of note-taking and all kind of stuff. So I think you can get a lot done you know, with just, what, five to ten min- minutes at the beginning of class, right, Regan, to really get students on board with the kind of practices that we preach. Well, if that, and I think, John, I love the fact that you mentioned the note-taking because that is such a wake-up call early on to go, wait a minute, was it in my class, in, in my notes from last class, right? Yeah, I. Uh, it, it's so funny. This would have been my example as well. In my own courses, I do the exact same thing. We do a recall retrieval practice at the beginning of every class. Um, 
my situation is I, I work with professional students in a doctoral program. So, um, they don't like anything that's called a quiz or looks like a quiz. Um, and so there's a little bit of like talking about the value of what we're doing, but then we also use that as jumping off points for discussion. So a lot of the questions that I ask are really like deep kinds of questions, application questions where they have to think a little bit about it. We might spend a little bit more time on the actual retrieval practice to get them engaged in that, but then they, they go and, and chat about it with each other and it's really good. Um, you guys wrote a book. That's why that's a little bit of why we're here talking, right? <laughs> um, yeah. So you guys wrote a book. It is, I don't, I don't want to get the title wrong here. It's Study Like a Champ, the Psychology-Based Guide to Grade A Study Habits. So I want to talk a little bit about this book. And my, my first question is, how did it come about? So I'm like picturing you guys at a, at a conference and like, I don't know, chatting over beers. I'm like, Hey, you want to write a book? Like, let's do it. <laughs> so, so there are, there are at least two of those three elements actually are were there. <laughs> they, uh, there was a conference, there was a beer, uh, right. Uh, and, and, and basically, so, but to add to that, John and I were both at the University of Washington in Seattle many, many years ago in a galaxy far, far away. And uh, we were both in the same corridor. We knew each other. We went different ways. But many years later, when I was looking for a partner to get a book on study stills out to students, John was the person I talked about, uh, thought of immediately because, as you've already heard, he does such a good job of not just doing lab work uh, and efficacy kinds of studies, but he does effectiveness studies. He does implementation kinds of studies. So he, he completely came to mind. And, I, you know, I just thought it'd be a great opportunity for us to work together. Uh, and and from then on, yes, uh, MPA, Palmer House, Hilton, uh, Barr. Uh, napkins, you know, all that kind of stuff. But yeah, it was, it, it's been, it was fun. I mean, that, the day is when we were both in the Midwest. Uh, I spent 20 years at the University of Wisconsin, Green Bay. And, uh, that's when actually this project first got kicked, kicked out, uh, kick started, uh, and then moved here to Oregon and we finished it off. So yeah, that's, that's the original story. Yeah. It's been a lot of fun working with you, Regan. And I think it, it shows, comes across in the book too, how it reads. Yeah. So uh, let's talk a little bit about the book. Um, obviously, it's a book aimed for students to guide their study habits. Um, what makes this book unique? And also, uh, I wanted to make sure it's clear to the folks listening. What's the age group for the book? Well, I think the age group listed is something like two-year-old to, to 25. I, <laughs> I, don't, I don't recommend this for a two-year-old, but if you're thinking about buying a gift for you know, a future Christmas present or something like that, would be awesome or Hanukkah present. I would say this volume probably could be useful to anyone late high school throughout college time. Quite frankly, an, an individual out of college who wants to be a self-regulated learner, I think this would be a really good book for. And uh, But what makes it unique is why I'm excited about it, because there are a variety of volumes available that discuss really effective strategies and I'm not going to name any of them because they're competitors, but I love them all. <laughs> and, you know, I think many of them uh, for me, fall flat for two reasons. And the flat is way too strong because I do love these volumes. Uh, first, there are often way too many recommendations in the books. So I, I, as a student, sure, I would love to know the 150th most effective strategy for this one particular skill, but I'm already overwhelmed. And Regan and I made a conscious effort 
just focus on a handful of easy-to-use, immediately useful strategies. Another thing that we did that I really loved, many of the volumes out there are written appropriately for teachers and instructors. How can you utilize these the evidence-based knowledge that we have about how to build a better student in your own classroom? Our book is written directly to the student, hopefully talking to the student directly and telling them how they can utilize these strategies in a very kind of pragmatic, here's how you do it way. So I think that makes the book relatively unique. Don't get me wrong, if you're an instructor, I highly recommend reading this too, because you'll understand how to apply this in your own classroom. But you might have a better insight into how to help students use these strategies Partly because after talking to many students over the last 10 years, I realized that even the most simple strategy, when described in a general way, it's not obvious always how to apply it in a particular context. Even if that means I show them how to use it in, say, an intro psych class, students at times, and this is totally uh, makes sense, have a difficulty taking that same strategy and applying it to a different class. We kind of tell them how to do that right? How to apply it more widely so they get the sense about how to use it. So that's probably way too much. I'm just excited about this volume, <laughs> about what I think, if not makes it unique, makes it special because there are other volumes that are awesome out there doing some of these things. Too. Yeah. You know, if I could just pull a couple of threads out of there, uh, first off, I would, I would, you know, more realistically, and I know John was kidding about the two years, but what I've been amazed about by is the, the range to, uh, for whom this book could apply. I mean, I've actually pilot tested it with some 14 year olds, namely mine. Uh, and, <laughs> and the good news is, yeah, I have a 14-year-old and a 16-year-old. They both read it and commented on it. Uh, and then, of course, I gave it just like John, I'm sure, has uh, to everybody in my research lab, all my undergrad students, my honor students. So I think the range, I mean, it's really high school and college, but it's also beyond uh, where, you know, John and I were on an on an APA podcast. And in response to that, there was a person in the business who had listened to it and read the book and said, this is you know, great for the business world. So I think that's, that's, that all goes to that bit about this is written for the user, right? But, and, and I think a part of that that I really want to highlight is that something, a mistake I made myself in the many years that I spoke to students is like, is basically saying, look, here are all the ways you can study better, right? All well and good. And I felt good about myself sharing cognitive science. But what I wasn't doing was putting myself in the student's shoes and thinking about different classes and thinking about different uh, advice. And I think what we've managed to do or aimed to do and mostly managed to do is even when we talk about some advice, in most chapters, if not all, we go, and here are the things you may run into that may be problematic, you know? And I think to do that, we really tapped into our experience as teachers. You know, when we've tried to tell somebody to space their practice, here's what happened. And that's into the book to, to sort of to sort of help that student jump ahead and not make those mistakes that our past students have made. And I think that's what I really love about this. And that all comes from John and me unabashedly saying we are writing for students. 
you know, that was fun. Yeah. So I'm going to pull a couple threads from, from what both of you said. So one of those things is John, you mentioned like kind of keeping it small. Like we're only going to talk about a few things that work well. Megan and I have some, re- uh, some unpublished research from uh, a while back now that needs to get published. That, that's a different story. That's a different story for a different day. <laughs> but uh, we found that um, when we were teaching some of these study strategies to students, we found in particular first generation students, it was too much for them. It was way too much for them, um, which just, it, it resonated when you, when you were saying like, keep it just focused on a few things because when, you know, a, a new college student is coming in, they have a lot to process besides just like, and also here's a book and try to apply everything in this book as well, right? That's <laughs> a lot. Um, so I, I really appreciated that. And then Regan talking about different age groups, I, I feel like in, in an ideal world, in utopia, these things wouldn't have to be taught because they would have been in the culture of what we do in classrooms, starting much, much younger, right? That um, it, when you think about like a preschool classroom, these retrieval practices everywhere, right? They, oh, what, name this, what is this, what is this, right? And then at some point that kind of disappears. But if we could really infuse these things into the younger classrooms and and it was just a normal natural thing like of course I should space out my study that's what we do in class we do spaced review that would be a, a beautiful thing well I so so Cynthia can I can I you know you said something at the start of this podcast that you know you just sort of touched back to that I want to connect because I think it's so important and that is there are many 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 passionate caring well-meaning teachers who make some assumptions because I know I made this assumption. I made the assumption that somebody had taught these students this somewhere, right? By the time they got to me, they had learned about this. That was assumption number one, right? Assumption number two was if I tell our students, my students about it, they'll do it. Even they'll see me support them, they'll do it. That was assumption number two. And something that I changed maybe about eight years ago is I suddenly realized that Hello, I'm the instructor. I can design the class to have retrieval practice and space practice and interleaving and all of that. And I think, you know, the power we have as instructors and, and you know, the power teachers have in terms of lesson planning, I think that's where that really neat intersection is. Is And I think, you know, when I look at this book with its, you know, s- circumscribed issues, there are very pragmatic kind of you know, there are times when John and I say, we hope your instructor is doing this. And I will tell you, Cynthia, I don't feel bad saying this. There are times when we say, hey, student, if your instructor is not doing this, tell them to do it, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, you you hit upon something here, Regan, that, that I wrote down. I was going to ask you. We have a book. We're going to hand this book out to students and they're going to read it and hopefully get something out of it. You know, as well as I do, that telling students what they should be doing doesn't always mean that they start doing it. So what can the educators who are handing out this book do to actually get students to use what's in it? Yeah. So 
I think there are two things. One is realize the power of course design that is in our hands and design your course to facilitate these. And the second one is, uh, you, you, you almost said it without seeing it, so I'm going to say it, which is make transparent all these uh, optimal ways of studying that we may be doing, but we haven't, you know, labeled it as such. And, uh, you know, I think students sometimes think, oh, this is busy work or this is tough. Well, when we are clear about our philosophies for why we're doing something design-wise or why we're having our students do it, something clicks and they go, oh, that's why. And then they're more likely to do it. So I would say, uh, you know, definitely when handing the book out or even talking about learning strategies in general, right? And the learning scientists have done a great job with posters and, and things like that. Don't just put the poster up, but then work and saying, look, let's connect what this means to your life and to this class. Yeah, that's great. Um, thank you, Regan. John, do you have anything that you want to add? Well, I could kind of resonate with what Regan said. I mean, really, it, it just depends what chapter we're looking at and which class they're taking. Uh, really, for me, one of the most valuable chapters, and this is where I would start really young, although it would be hard to instantiate, is just on time management. Because many of the effective strategies that Regan and I, others, are recommending students use and teachers use requires some time management. That is, let me restate it in the most obvious way, It they require that students just don't cram. So, you know, that's where we'd like to see younger students being really given the opportunity to manage their own time and getting rewarded for managing their time. And it's something I wish we did through K through 12, but that's not how those systems are set up. So I think uh, for the right class, I might emphasize different aspects of the book. Certainly for a first year experience course, I'd spend a lot of time in time management and rewarding them for actually managing their week and their month at a time and so forth. But hope we could, hopefully we could start this earlier. Uh, certainly high school and so forth. We just need a little school reform is all. That's yeah, another just a little. <laughs> that's, that's another book, Regan. Uh, school reform for the 20, 23rd century. Yeah, next project. <laughs> but, but you know what? You know, I, I think it's empowerment too, Cynthia. I, I think it's empowerment. I think there are so many faculty, so many teachers, so many instructors who are so pressured to get content across that they don't take the time for study skills, even though they know it's important. And I think that's something where I leveraged my own academic freedom uh, and course design abilities where where the f a large portion of my first two class periods are about study techniques. And now it's it's easier because it's psychology. So it's like, oh, yeah, this is psych stuff. But it's also, it's so important to say, look, I'm first going to give you these tools. And yes, these tools happen to be psychology. And this is a psych class. But it's tools that are going to help you succeed in this course. And just John mentioned planning on time management. And I say to the students, you know, I'm telling you now, day one, week one, because most of you are taking five other classes and working and other stuff. These are the things that are going to make this term less stressful for you in general, which is a chapter we end with, which is stress and physical activity and all of that, which is important too. Yeah. And I think you both would agree with me. You know, when I have students in class, I want to set them up to succeed. I would like for all of them to succeed. And so why not at the very beginning of every course, give them, this is how you succeed in this course, right? And um, many of those things translate to other courses as well. But I don't want the reason why somebody does poorly in my class because they spent you know, 20 hours going through their flashcards, working really hard 
and just not knowing that what they were doing was just not that effective. It's it's the problem with cramming. I spend 20 you know hours with flashcards the day before the exam. I'm going to bomb. If I use those same 20 hours with the same flashcards spread across time, I'm going to excel. I mean, it's just how they really, they, they set up their time. You know, when I was younger too, I always thought when a student would come to me and, and said, well, I was ready for this test, but I flunked it. I just always thought, you know, when I studied really hard, originally I always just thought that they were kind of fibbing to me. And now I realize they did study hard the night before, and that can only get you so far. So it's they studied a lot, but they didn't study correctly. And that's what we're really trying to push them. Use the same amount of time, but use it in a better way. Well, that those are all the questions that I have for you guys today. Is there anything else that I didn't ask that you would like to share with our listeners? You know, I, I think this is one of the things I, I, I think about is a lot is there are so many books out there. So there are, there are so many resources out there. So there are so many guides out there. There are so many caring teachers who want, you know, students, students to do well. Uh, and I think by writing this book for students, we've taken a big step towards, towards going, all right, I think we've captured your lives, right? But it's still, but we're not there yet. And I think, and I think what I know both John and I are open to, and I know many of the, I'm betting many of the listeners are really open to is how do we look at the realities of student lives today in 2023 with higher likelihood of COVID and sickness and, you know, not feeling good. And, and I mean, the whole dynamic nowadays is so different, right? I mean, if somebody is not feeling good today, that, that hanging specter of is it COVID completely changes your decision to, on whether to go to class or not versus four or five years ago. Well, and it changes, it changes my decision as a professor. Yes. I don't want you to come to class, right? Right. And, and that and that's so all that old school attendance is important stuff. We've got to rethink that. You know, we've got to think about different opportunities to participate. You know, one thing that COVID did for me when we taught remotely, I used the chat function in in Zoom. And when we went back to in person, I, I, I use I continued to use the chat even for an in-person class. And I found that that was such a great inclusive teaching tool to let more students participate. And that is a factor here because the more they participate, the more they're, the, the deeper they're processing, the more likely they are to learn more. And I think those are the kind of uh, affordances that we've got to factor in more. So this book was pretty much primarily written, uh, yes, you know, finished during COVID, but, you know, I would love to take a look at it in a year and say, what, what would, what, how would we change our practical, pragmatic suggestions, uh, you know, based on what we know is going on in higher education today? All right, folks, look for the second edition. Exactly. It's coming out in a few years. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. There'll be the chat GPT chapter. Exactly. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, John, did you think of anything that you want to share? I think Regan summed it up. Or we'll be uh, raring to go with a second edition that's more expanded. And yeah, definitely with respect to listeners, I hope everyone picks up a copy. And if you have ideas on how we can improve this moving forward, let's work as a community and uh, reach out to us. Tell us what you think and 
uh, look forward to the second edition. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you both so much for being here today. I very much appreciate um, everything that you have to share about the scholarship of teaching and learning and about you yourselves as educators. Thank you again. Have a fantastic day. And um, we'll look forward to seeing that second edition coming out soon. (laughs) Thanks. Thank you. This episode is funded by listeners like you. To support our work and gain access to exclusive content, visit our Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash learning scientists.